coming up. You could see in the video people looking out their windows, what is going on, you know, to find body parts so close to where kids and families are living. It was just kind of shocking at the time. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. In that afternoon of October 5th, 2003, sheriff's deputies responded to an apartment complex in the 1600 block of Hilton Head Court in Rancho San Diego for a report of human remains found in a dumpster. In the fall of 2003, the legs of a murder victim were discovered inside a dumpster in Rancho San Diego, California. But for more than a decade and a half, investigators couldn't figure out who she was, how she died, or who killed her. Despite the medical examiner and the homicide unit's best efforts, the woman was not identified, and unfortunately, the case went cold. David Gottfredson joins us from CBS 8 in San Diego. David, let's go back to October of 2003. Walk me through this gruesome discovery. Well, it was gruesome. Uh, Our cameras were there, and uh, it was a discovery of body parts originally it was told to the news media and we have video from the scene showing sheriff's detectives taking photos of the dumpster and it was later uh as you say discovered that uh it was only adult female legs that were found and so they tried to identify figure out who this person was we presume they never found any more body parts in any other dump dumpsters around Southern California. So the case went cold and they never figured out who this person was. And you mentioned this old footage from 2003 and I've seen some of it. And I think what stands out to me is just the setting. It's this typical big apartment complex, well-manicured lawns, neighbors kind of coming out to see what's going on. It's not like this was discovered, you know, in a dumpster in some dark corner of an alley. This seemed to be right in the middle of people's front yards, right? Right. It it looked like uh, uh, condos surrounding the dumpster. And it's just a a dumpster that neighbors would bring their trash out to. And uh, uh, you could see in the video people looking out their windows, what is going on, you know, to find body parts so close to where kids and families uh, are living. It was just kind of shocking at the time. And you mentioned that investigators at the time were unable to figure out who this woman was. Were they able to determine anything about how she died or or her cause of death? I don't think so. Uh, They announced at the news conference uh, the other day that they did an autopsy. They figured out basically the legs were those of an adult female. And that was it. So, um, you know, when you think about cause of death, Uh, It'd be difficult to try to figure that out from just having the legs of the victim. Uh, So it was a mystery for for years and years. So investigators are left with evidence of what clearly appears to be a gruesome crime, but no identity for the victim and no strong leads then on who's responsible. But as we've recently learned, they would eventually turn to genetic genealogy, which is something our regular listeners are pretty familiar with. We've covered the Golden State Killer on this podcast and a handful of other cases that have used that approach. But can you give us a refresher on what exactly we're talking about when we refer to genetic genealogy? 
Well, yeah, uh, investigative genetic genealogy has typically been used to identify uh, the suspects of crimes when, for example, in a sexual assault, you have the DNA of the suspect and that DNA profile uh, may, you know, most times has been entered into CODIS, the National Law Enforcement Database, to try and figure out who they are. But there's no hits because that individual has never been arrested or at least never had his DNA entered into a database. So uh, the process is used to go back and compare that DNA profile uh, through publicly available family genealogy sites where people have uh, voluntarily uploaded their DNA profiles uh, for ancestry purposes. Now, uh, some of those uh, sites uh, have the people sign waivers saying, is it okay to make your profile publicly available so we can find relatives? And uh, law enforcement uses those publicly available sites typically to identify suspects. But in this case, they used it to identify the victim. So they still had a profile of, of the victim, the woman who, whose, whose legs were found, and they had entered her profile into law enforcement databases, but she probably never had a criminal history and she wasn't in those databases. Right. So they went back to identify her by running her DNA profile through genetic genealogy, family, ancestry databases, and they apparently got a hit. In June of 2020, the Sheriff's Homicide Cold Case Team, in cooperation with the Medical Examiner's Office and the Crime Lab, selected this case to be worked utilizing investigative genetic genealogy. And I know the San Diego Sheriff's Office said actually that the fact that they were trying to identify a victim as opposed to a suspect made things kind of easier when they were reaching out to people and trying to get relatives to provide DNA samples. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, the detective that was working this case uh, actually got a hit linking the victim to a distant cousin from the 1800s. So then what he has to do is try to figure out this person from the 1800s, is there a family tree somewhere already created or does he have to create his own family tree and trace it down, triangulate things, parents, siblings, all the way down to where they were able to actually find who they thought was the, the son of this victim. We build family trees up with uh, and try to get a cross of two, two members of the family so we can determine the most common or most recent common ancestor. And that may be all the way back into the 1800s. In this case, it was. Once we're there, we just continue to build the family tree back down so that you have all the persons inside that family tree. And they go to these distant relatives and they went to the son in this case and they said, we need you to give a DNA profile to us. Are you willing to do that? And when they're trying to identify a victim, you get much more cooperation from uh, the family members because they want to know what happened to this family member. I'll call them and I'll say, I'm Detective Troy Dugal. This is my case. 
one of your relatives is a victim of a homicide, I notice that you're in Ancestry, or I will send you an Ancestry kit, and I need 100% consent from you, will you participate? And I may be able to solve this case. In this specific case, every time I did that, 100% of the time, the public participated. The son, apparently, and family members in this case, never knew uh, what happened to this woman. She was never reported missing. They thought she voluntarily took off, and they, they never knew she was dead until uh, the DNA test came through. And I was able to, after six months, identify Lori Potter. And it's then that this victim is identified as 54-year-old Lori Potter. What do we know about her? Well, we know at the time that uh, she lived in Temecula, which is in Southern California, uh, with her husband, Jack Dennis Potter. Um, And at that point, they still don't have a cause of death, I presume, because they still only have the legs. Once they knew who the victim was through the DNA with uh, test with the son, uh, they started to do old-fashioned detective work. And then when I identified Lori Potter, we opened the homicide investigation and went back to tr- traditional means. Which, uh, to me, means they went back and said and looked at where was she living, talked to her son, talked to family members, talked to people who knew the couple and what was going on with the couple back in the day. Uh, And there must have been something we haven't heard yet that indicated that there was some tension or problems between uh, the husband and wife because uh, they tracked down leads and eventually arrested the husband, who's now 68 years old. He's sitting in San Diego jail, uh, awaiting to be arraigned on a murder charge. On May 12th, the San Diego Regional Fugitive Task Force arrested now 68-year-old Jack Potter outside of his apartment complex in the 11200 block of 5th Street in Rancho Cucamonga. Jack was transported and booked in the San Diego Central Jail for the murder of Lori Potter. Hmm. But they haven't given any indication as to what specific evidence led them to arrest the husband yet? Uh, No, they indicated that other law enforcement agencies had helped them. They lived out of San Diego County, just north of here. So we're going to have to wait and see that, especially if he tries to get bail or argues for bail uh, in court. Then um, we'll get more details of uh, what indicated to prosecutors that he was the guy who killed his wife. As you mentioned earlier, there is that interesting detail that Lori Potter was never reported missing, despite her death being now nearly two decades ago. Lori was never reported as a missing person. This case would have unlikely to have ever been solved without the use of investigative genetic genealogy. Do we know why that was? If nobody had heard from her for such a long time, why nobody reported her missing? We don't know. And, and uh, you know, the, the police, uh, the, the detective indicated this is still an active case. And they're hoping for anybody who knew the couple going back as far as the 1980s to come forward with information so they can put more of a timeline together. Uh, as far as I know, the son has not been uh, interviewed, and it's typical in these cases where the the officers were t- will tell the family members, uh, "Don't do media interviews because we're still trying to, uh, you know, put a case together on this individual." But they did get 
you know, probable cause to arrest this guy and uh, bring him down. He was arrested again uh, uh, in uh, Rancho Cucamonga, which is up in the L.A. area, and bring him down to San Diego. So they did have the evidence to bring him down there, but down here. But he still hasn't been he still hasn't been arraigned. And there hasn't been any uh, his side of the story, you know, coming from his lawyer because we haven't heard from him yet. He's due to be arraigned uh, this week, but with COVID restrictions, that can change. With genetic genealogy being a relatively new investigative tool, this is the first time that it's been used in the San Diego area to identify a victim, but it's only been used a couple times in the area to identify suspects. Are there other cases where investigators are hoping to use this technology or are currently using it to try to identify either victims or suspects? Well, that came up at the news conference and the detective said they have uh, four detectives working in the cold case unit. They have many more working in the regular homicide unit, but this is specifically the cold case unit. And he said just within that cold case unit, they're working four to five cases using genetic genealogy. And uh, we don't know whether they're using it to identify victims uh, or suspects. It's much more common uh, to use it to identify suspects. And I can think of a number of cold case uh, murders in San Diego that remain unsolved uh, where, you know, this uh, genetic genealogy could be used. Uh, the, The sheriff's department said they have used it successfully in two other cold case murders, But once they tracked, you know, they spent months tracking it down through the family tree and identifying who the suspect was, they went back and they found that the suspect in both of those old cases were deceased. Uh, This specific case was different. We had solved two other cases prior to this, but they were um, where we identified suspects and then determined the suspects had they were deceased. So we couldn't pursue anything else but close the case. But still, that that gives, you know, the family of the victims some closure to know that the suspect was identified. And, uh, you know, in these two cases, uh, the suspects were deceased. David Gottfredson with CBS 8 in San Diego. You'll have to keep us posted on this. Thanks for sharing the story. Thank you. One update on this case. Since I spoke with David Gottfredson, Jack Potter was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to the murder charge he's facing. Potter is being held without bail at the San Diego Central Jail, though no additional details regarding the alleged killing were disclosed at his arraignment. We'll be sure to keep you posted on that. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. Thanks for listening.